Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 128, Peter Fenner on entering into natural meditation. In this episode, I speak with non-dual teacher and former Tibetan monk, Peter Fenner. We discuss his teachings on the nature of awareness, on the practice of deconstructive inquiry, and on the non-dual approach to awakening. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm here today in the studio with a special guest. We have today with us Peter Fenner. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. Hi, Vince. It's great to have this time with you. Yeah, thank you. Just a little bit of background for those listeners out there who might not be aware of your work. You are the author of uh, several books, including Radiant Mind, Reasoning into Reality, and The Edge of Certainty. As I understand it, your work has a lot to do with exploring how to take kind of traditional Buddhist non-dual wisdom and find a way to present it in a way that really is effective for Western peoples. Is that true? Yes. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Because that's what I've been working on for, I guess, uh, what, a little over 30 years, is firstly immersing myself in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition quite deeply, Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism, being engaged and involved with that within its own framework for about 15 years. And then a change happened and I moved away from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and began teaching in my own right, integrating Western psychology and experimenting with how best to present Buddhist non-dual wisdom for Westerners so that it was easy to take it in so that they could do it in the context of their everyday life. Fantastic. So we're going to hopefully get to cover in more depth every piece of what you just said, but I wanted to start kind of where all good stories start, which is hopefully at the beginning. Okay. Not too far back, not before, you know, the Big Bang or anything, but start with your time as a Buddhist monk. You're actually a traditionally trained Buddhist monk, and I wanted to hear a little bit about your experience with that. The story is that I was studying uh, Western philosophy at a university in Australia and then had the good fortune to encounter Eastern philosophy at a time when I was uh, really struggling myself in my young 20s and looking for something that would really help me to work with my own suffering, the confusion that I found myself in. So the stepping stone was uh, Advaita Vedanta um, at university, but that led me quite quickly into Tibetan Buddhism. And I had the good fortune to meet Lama Tubten Yeshi. Uh, the first Tibetan Lama to visit Australia in uh, 1974. And then it really all came together. I just knew that this is where I had to direct my attention. And so then I really pursued both the philosophical study of Tibetan Buddhism and the practice. And yes, in uh, 1978, I was ordained as a monk in India and kept that ordination while I was doing my PhD and through the first years of my teaching Eastern philosophy in a university environment. And how long did you spend as a monastic? 
Nine years. Nine years. And were you spending that time primarily in Australia? Mainly in Australia. Sometime in uh, India, US, uh, and Nepal, but primarily in Australia. And were you um, mostly studying with the original teacher you encountered, or were you kind of uh, studying with different teachers? I was mainly studying with uh, Tibetan Geshe, Geshe Tubten Lodan, who was the resident Geshe at Chenrezig Institute, just north of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. So he was my primary teacher of Buddhist philosophy, but my root guru was clearly Lama Tubten Yeshe. He's the master who really gave me the direction for what I've done since first meeting him right up to this point. And I'm guessing what you found during that period was probably very important and very influential in your life. At the same time, you eventually disrobed and, mm-hmm. and started teaching in your own right. And the emphasis in your teaching took a slightly different turn. And I'd be really interested in hearing what it is that happened to lead in that new direction. I'm still not not sure what really happened. I was pursuing my practices and finding that they weren't, I guess, giving me the result that I was looking for. So I found myself in an existential crisis, effectively, finding that I was practicing but really not making any significant progress in terms of recovering basic sanity, being able to live with myself in a in a very comfortable and accepting way. So that led me to explore different avenues besides Tibetan Buddhism, particularly to explore different innovations in Western psychotherapy. And that quite quickly took me out of Buddhism, and Buddhism became untenable for me, at least in that traditional context. So yes, I disrobed, and then really, in a way, stepped into nothing because I was leaving behind the structures that had supported me in a very powerful and effective way for about five or six years, but then seemed to lose their traction in terms of supporting me. Mm. And what did you find going into this? Did you find that some of the psychotherapeutic techniques or some of the other things that you delved into actually helped with regards to what your primary aim was? Yes, certainly. Uh, The first program I encountered after disrobing was what was EST and what is now the Landmark Forum. And that was... uh, stunning. It really opened my eyes because what I saw happening in that environment was the presentation of the shunyavada, of the emptiness tradition in a Western context, and more than that, to people who were just coming off the street. So I saw something happening that I thought was impossible, that I'd been taught was impossible, namely the presentation of the very profound teachings on emptiness or openness in Mahayana Buddhism to people who didn't have 10, 20, 30 years of training in uh, other Buddhist practices. I'd be interested in hearing kind of what happened in between disrobing and then starting to teach. Were there some significant shifts outside of just the encountering The first uh, program that I offered to the public, now about 
23 years ago was titled Therapeutic Adaptations of Buddhist Psychology. So that was great because I really had no experience in teaching to a professional public. And so the first off was to teach to psychologists and medical professionals, and it was great. I found that it worked really well that I was able to present Buddhist teachings on emptiness and really open it up in a way that people could have a direct taste of the unconditioned dimension, nature of mind itself. Yeah, and that that seems like a primary thing that you point to in your work. What I point to in my work is this. And when I say this, I'm pointing to this at both the conditioned level, how we are in our embodied existence, for example, sitting here together in this studio, but also pointing to a dimension which goes beyond the finite, which goes beyond the conditioned reality. So it's pointing to this as pure awareness, we could say, or in the Zen tradition as no mind or emptiness. Different words are used in different traditions. But for me, they're all pointing to the same timeless, unconditioned reality. And I had the chance to go to one of your events uh, several months ago. And the first thing that you did to engage the audience was that you started asking, what is awareness? And you're asking people to give their answers, and then you're kind of engaging in a dialogue with them about awareness or, and, and continuing to ask further questions. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that method of teaching, or what, what that's about. Well, I find dialogue very effective. I find silence and dialogue and the weaving of those together to be a very powerful way for moving beyond just being identified with what's happening at the feeling, thinking, sensate level and move into presencing what's often called the non-dual. So yes, I've in a way adapted the type of deconstructive inquiry that you get in the Madhyamika tradition of Mahayana Buddhism and I've tried to adapt that so it can work in a conversational setting. So in the Madhyamika Uh, the inquiry is driven by what's called unfindability analysis, which means that when we look for something, say particularly ourselves, but it could be other things, we can't find a substantial reality behind the word, behind the concept. So I've adapted that so we can use unfindability inquiry, we can employ it in a conversational context. And what do you find people discover in that process? Well, in a way, they discover no thing or no thingness. They discover emptiness. They discover something that we can't think about. They discover something that has no identifying characteristics. We can't say even that it exists or doesn't exist. So we encounter, let's say, the mystery of being, but without any need to try to understand it. So we go beyond the need to know, we go beyond the need to be doing, and then we engage with, we enter this reality right now in a way that we're complete. Nothing more needs to happen. We don't need to know anything more. Does that stick for people often? or? Well, it, then it comes and goes. Right. So in the context of a course, people may presence the non-dual, 
presence, pure awareness, for a few minutes here and there, or 10 or 15 minutes, both when they're open and engaged with other people and also in a contemplative mode or contemplative mood, then people work at embodying the experience, bringing it into their daily life. So I, I understand the deconstructive dialogue is just one component of how you'd work with people and what they'd be doing with you. It's a major component. The work that we do in a workshop setting, the dialogues that people have with me, but in a nine-month course, they also do a lot of work with each other. Mm. So they're working at developing these skills in supporting each other in seeing through the sense of being a, an individual, a discrete person, and seeing through into the selflessness of themselves. And so people support each other in that way. Gotcha. In your program, do you do any kind of just interior, kind of formal meditation the way we think about it typically? No, the meditation falls out of the process. Natural meditation emerges when people find that there's nothing more they have to think about. So when the energy of trying to understand or trying to get somewhere, trying to pursue a goal, when that energy dissipates, then people enter into a state of natural contemplation uh, that can either be very interiorized and very deep and very blissful, or in other circumstances it can be, as I say, aware, open, and connected with other people. Wow, that's really interesting that you don't have any kind of more formal sitting practices given your background. I invite people to do just sitting, but often I introduce it in a way that people discover that they're already meditating. So it's a very flexible practice in the way I introduce it. Uh, so in just sitting, we simply sit and in a sense the practice is complete hmm. as soon as we're sitting because we're not practicing by looking for some reference point in terms of what we should or shouldn't be doing. So the practice consists of doing whatever we're doing. We can't not be doing what we're doing, so the practice is always complete. Interesting. And do you find with an emphasis on that that you are able to sidestep or I'm not sure the wording, but that there's some obstacles to traditional practices that have stronger goals or stronger techniques. Well, I think the primary thing in my approach is that we're not looking for obstacles. If you look for obstacles, they're there, they arise. It's very easy to create that something is an obstacle, something is in the way of me being in that state of uh, real completion in the moment. So we work at what sometimes is called the fruition or the result level, meaning that we, in a way, just try to be in that state of feeling complete, being at the end of the path, being at that point where there is nowhere further to go. There's no going backwards, there's no going forwards. So in a way, the work introduces that possibility and invites people just to be in that way. And do you, this is something I always wonder when I think about that kind of approach because my own personal experience has been almost the opposite mm -hmm. way in and yet I feel like through banging my head against the wall enough, I kind of started to relax. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, I'm wondering, do you ever find people running into the issue of feeling that 
they're complete, but in some ways fooling themselves or in some ways a slight delusion about what that means? Depends how seriously you take your thinking. You can think, this is an illusion. I'm not really at that place of fulfillment. I'm not presencing the non-dual. If you take that thought seriously, then no, you're not in that place because you're still thinking dualistically in terms of being on the path and arriving at a goal, being there and not being there. But it's possible for that thought just to move through awareness and it just moves and flows through without identification, without taking it seriously. So in that case, anything can arise without producing any disturbance because if we're presencing pure awareness, we can feel, we can see that there's nothing that can be disturbed. Awareness itself can't be disturbed by anything, which is why it's often described as being imperturbable, indestructible. Mm that sounds like it still takes some level of sincerity to, to not be fooled in particular by thoughts. It sounds like there's still a sense of sincerity or a sense of remembering or coming back and a discipline of some sort, but it sounds like a discipline that's not really trying to get somewhere. Is that an accurate way uh, of talking about things? I wouldn't describe it like that because nothing is needed. So in a way, again, that's the invitation mm. to be in the space in which we don't need anything, that we can just be with this, be with whatever is exactly as it is without needing things to be different. So there's no discipline involved in that because that would be a doing. But there's, a, I guess, a sense of just becoming more and more familiar with this space and then just tasting it and acknowledging that, yes, when we're in this space, there is nothing more that we need to do. So then a deep resting just naturally occurs. Mm. Sounds nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the, the kind of innovations that you've stumbled across and that you've put into practice and, and how that relates to Western people in particular. I think one of the things I've done is to take people's aspirations and make them real. So as Buddhists, we have a lot of aspirations and it's very easy to think that, ah, yes, emptiness, that's really great. Or having a taste of nirvana or touching the nature of mind, that's really great. But it's really, it's beyond me. Yes, there are great masters who can abide in those states but no, for me, it's really going to require a lot of practice, many, many years, and then maybe I'll have a glimpse. So I feel that in a way we shortchange ourselves through thinking in that way, and that it's much, much simpler than we often believe. And so part of the process, in a way, is going beyond those types of fixed beliefs and just saying, okay, so... Yes, the teachings are telling me that I can't know reality as such, that I can't know pure consciousness, it's beyond the mind. Okay, I can't know it, so I will let go of that need to know. You see, in a way, we don't believe that we cannot know the nature of consciousness itself. We keep telling ourselves that we can know it because we've been conditioned 
that theoretically at least we can know everything. There's nothing beyond the reach of the mind. And so it just takes time and touching the mind itself and realizing that there's no object of knowledge here. Mm. There's nothing to know. That's why we can't know the nature of mind. It has no structure. It's contentless. So if something's contentless, we have no subject matter. There's nothing to see, nothing to taste, nothing mm. to know. So that, that becomes self-evident when we confront that 20, 50, 100 times. And then in some way, then we become convinced. And then what happens? Then we just, we're here in the way that we are now, in which everything is arising. We're fully cognizant of each other, appreciating each other, fully taking in past, present, and future, and also aware of awareness itself, and aware that there's no one who is aware of awareness. So if we're looking for who is aware of the fact that there's awareness happening at the moment, we can't find who is aware. So I'd be interested just in closing to ask you what kinds of things might you offer to people who listen to a show called Buddhist Geeks. Mm. (laughs) Because you clearly have delineated yourself in some ways from more traditional kind of approaches. I'd be interested in what you'd have to offer. What I would invite people to do is to relax, firstly, not take the spiritual endeavor, not take themselves so seriously. So just to relax, to begin just to accept themselves, accept things as they are, not to create some grandiose goal in the future of achieving full enlightenment, but to back off from that a little and to say, okay, look, just to taste nirvana, just to have uh, like a five-minute resting in that state of pure awareness, that would be great. And then I can develop it from there. And saying, so that is within my reach. That is possible. So then to engage in not just the work that I've developed, but a lot of uh, teachings that are available now in the non-dual tradition that make available the uh, presencing of awareness, just allowing us to be with what is without any struggle existing beyond pleasure and pain. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners 
who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.